Well, dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Well, for this morning's sermon, I need you to uh, find a pew Bible if you've got one handy. And I need you to pull out this scripture and turn to the first chapter in Matthew. So last night, the good people that worshiped at five, they got, they got to hear the whole genealogy, but I'm not gonna do that this morning. So when you get bored in the sermon, you can just read all the begats uh, that are there. But the, the Gospel of Matthew begins this way. Matthew writes, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he dives off into all the generations that had preceded Jesus. And it's a list of men uh, down through 42 generations. There are 14 up to the deportation to exile, and then 14, uh, no, excuse me, 14 up to Moses, and then from Moses to the deportation, there's 14, and from the deportation uh, to the time of Christ is another 14 generations. And there are three women's names in there, embedded, and guess what? There's reference to a fourth, four women that are referred to in the genealogy, filled with men. And three of them are not Jews. They're foreign women that are part of the genealogy of Jesus. And also with three of the four, there's, well, there's complexity, I'll put it that way, around the birth of the children that are conceived. We've got Tamar, we've got Rahab, we have Bathsheba, and then we have Ruth. And there's complexity in all of them. And so why would Matthew tell you a story of Christ's genealogy to prepare you the story about not Mary, but about Joseph, who's the main character in the birth narrative in the Gospel of Matthew? Because Matthew is making an argument that Jesus is in fact connected to Abraham and to David and to all the generations that have come. That in fact, this one named Jesus is a part of that genealogy. Well, how could that be? Well, what I love about the story and about the genealogies is you have God being faithful and that you have embedded in that genealogy story women being faithful, even when it was incredibly risky. Tamar was going to be put to death for her behavior because she was found to be pregnant and she was not supposed to be having sex with anyone. Ruth has to go out of her way to find a husband to take care of her and her mother-in-law. Rahab is running a house of ill repute in the city of Jericho. And a silly promise is made, if, if you keep us safe, you and your family will not be hurt when the city falls. So we've got women that are, that are in really desperate straits, living out promises that are given to them, and in every case, they're considered to be faithful. Just these lovely stories of, 
how God continues to work even when it just seems silly. And now we arrive at Joseph, and he's got a problem. To be betrothed in the first century meant that your parents, somewhere between about the age of eight and maybe 12, had made a, made a contract uh, with some neighbors, and they had promised that their son or their daughter would be married to your son or your daughter. And then when they were of age, there would be a public announcement that they were now betrothed, and then normally, but not always, but normally, there would be a year of public dating that these two could be seen together because they were betrothed. And then at the, at the end of the year, normally, the groom and his party would arrive at the bride's house and they would literally carry her through the streets, normally on a chair, to where they were going to make their household. And then there would be a ceremony at the door and then there would be a party, normally lasting about three days. Kind of how we do it, right? That's pretty much how I've married off my daughters. It's worked perfectly. It might have been cheaper, actually, thinking about it. So they're in that betrothed stage. And as it's quite clear, they've not had sex and she's pregnant. And so you just can't break off the engagement because again, it's not an engagement, it's a betrothal. And the only way to end it is in fact with a bill of divorce. You had to go to the elders and find a rabbi or someone who was in authority and they would write you out a decree of divorce. That was if you liked her. The other way was to publicly shame her and normally that would result in her death. He could have had her put to death and it would have been by stoning. So he in his righteousness has decided to put her away without all that. But truthfully, her life is in peril because to be divorced and to be pregnant was not only shameful but more than likely, if she still had a father alive, was not going to take her back in. It was risky business. And then a dream happens, which will happen more than once with Joseph. And he is told that the Holy Spirit has placed this child in her womb. The Jews in the first century got everything about uh, human sexuality right, except that they thought that the male issue was in fact a fully formed child called a humunculoid. And that the woman's, her role in bearing that child was to be fertile soil. Which is why all the language about infertility comes from the farm. It's about ground, it's about being good soil. And so they believed what he's being told is that the Holy Spirit has placed this humunculoid in her womb and that it's okay to marry this woman. And amazingly, he does that. And furthermore, he's given in the dream a name. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because the name is Jesus, which means save, to save, to save us. And so when the child is born, the father now, Joseph, makes this public announcement. His name is Jesus. 
and it's not just that we've named the child. By the dad naming him, he is saying to all those gathered, this is in fact my son. And by every edict within the Jewish community, when the father said, this is my son, that was the way it was. So Joseph is saying, this is not only my son, but the son of David, the son of Abraham, which is why Matthew lays out that genealogy. We have God with us to save us from our sins. And Matthew wants you to understand from the very beginning that God has not only been at work with Mary and Joseph and with Jesus, but down through all the generations, that all those generations that had preceded them, that our Heavenly Father, the Creator, had been at work being faithful, being God with us, even through some very risky behaviors where it didn't look like this was the way things should work. And certainly it didn't look that way to Joseph, did it? But here in the culmination of this story, we have a young man and a young woman doing risky stuff, bringing this child into the world, and for him to say to the community, this is my son, and his name is Jesus. As we approach this Christmas season, we're gonna hear a different story, or same story from a different storyteller next week on Christmas Eve. But it's still gonna be the same story of God at work in the world, bringing his son into the world to save us. As we approach this Christmas season, we are the people of God because God has reached into our lives and he's given us a savior. Not because we're Lutheran, not because we're privileged, not because we've done anything to earn it or deserve it, but just to reach into our lives, being faithful to his promise to always be there for us. And so here is this savior who has come and his name is Jesus. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So the gift is for you, the forgiveness of sins, life anew. The gift is for you in Jesus Christ, inviting you into a future where the promise still holds that no matter what, that Christ will remember you and hold you and keep you and carry you all the days of your life and into the next. So God's blessings on this fourth Sunday of Advent as we approach this celebration, this time of, of renewal, this time of birth in Jesus Christ. Amen.